You get three good mornings this morning. Good morning for the third time. My name is Stephen, and I am the pastor of church planting here at Fellowship, and it is so good to be with you. Uh, For those of you who are visiting for the first time as you're a guest, we're so glad you're here. This is our time in our service where we take time to worship the Lord through hearing from his word. And it's, it's an important part of what we do together. And today, we're starting a new series on <clears throat> what we're going to be talking about for the summer. And that is hope in suffering. How the gospel transforms our suffering. Now, you may be thinking as you hear that, wow, that's, that's a great light kind of summer series. Why a series on suffering? That's a great question. Suffering is a universal human experience. Everybody here in this room has experienced suffering, or maybe you are right now in this moment experiencing deep suffering. So everybody experiences it, but we understand and endure suffering differently depending on our worldview, depending on what we believe. The gospel transforms that universal experience of suffering in a unique way that no other message, no other worldview does. So for example, if you think about an Eastern worldview, perhaps an Eastern worldview would say that suffering is really just an illusion and that suffering comes from attachment. And so if you can detach yourself, then you can overcome this illusion that is suffering. Or perhaps from a materialistic worldview, a materialistic worldview says that suffering is the worst possible thing you can experience. And you should try to minimize suffering as much as you possibly can. So avoiding suffering and minimizing suffering is the most significant thing. That's, those are sort of worldview perspectives, but the gospel has a different message. Do you realize this morning that we have a message that doesn't avoid suffering, that doesn't ignore suffering, and doesn't minimize suffering? We have a message that faces suffering in all of its difficulty and challenge. It faces suffering head on. It embraces suffering, and it transforms suffering. So that's what we're going to spend the summer together from God's word talking about. And we're going to start that today. But before I get into God's word, would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are a God who loves us so much that not only would you enter into our suffering, but you would make an end to it through the cross and that you would give us all of this in your word. Lord, as we dig into your, your scripture, your truth, would it transform us? Would it challenge us as we look at the gospel and what it has to say for us? So bless your word as we look at it, that it would transform our minds and hearts to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we have a gospel that transforms suffering. And... The reason it does that is because at the heart of the gospel is the stark truth that Jesus himself suffered. The center of our message, 
of our good news is the death of Christ the Son. Think about that for a moment. That's the foundation for why suffering can be transformed. Because God himself entered into it. Today we're going to look at together, I think a familiar passage of scripture, that is Isaiah 53. And as we look at Isaiah 53, there's four things that I want to see from God's word together that help us to understand suffering that is at the heart of the gospel. So the first thing that I want us to see is that Jesus suffered like us. He suffered like the lowest of the low. Christ the Son died the death of an outcast. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, and we're going to look at the first four verses. God's word says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now this is a prophetic text. Isaiah the prophet is proclaiming a message for Judah. And he's proclaiming to them about what is coming. So earlier in Isaiah, he prophesied about judgment, exile that was coming on them for their disobedience. But since chapter 40 of the book of Isaiah, he's been preaching the message of hope. So it's first comes judgment and exile, then comes hope. Hope that God would restore and redeem them. And then we get to this part, this section of the book of Isaiah. And he's talking about what we call the suffering servant. This suffering servant. And this points forward to Jesus from their perspective. Because he's writing at a time, he's, he's proclaiming a prophetic message about what God is going to do from their perspective. But from our perspective, we're looking back at what Christ has already done for us. And so we see that this message, this whole chapter, points to Jesus. It's pretty obvious, really, when you read through it, how it points to Jesus. But this passage opens with a rhetorical question. It says, who has believed what he has heard from us? It's basically saying, who's listened to us? We proclaim this message, but who's listening? Who's paying attention? Who is believing? And it's an interesting to th thing to think about because you would ask, well, why wouldn't they listen? And why wouldn't you listen to the voice of God through his prophet? He says, it's a revelation of the arm of the Lord. Now think about that. That's an expression of God's power. We all want to see God's power, right? We'd like to see that. We'd like to see what God is going to do. And so that expression. But why would they not listen? Why wouldn't they hear? Why wouldn't they heed the message? Well, the reason for that is verses 2 through 4. It says, For he, that is the suffering servant, that's pointing to Jesus, 
grew up before him like a young plant, okay? Like a root out of dry ground. Okay, that starts to sound kind of not so nice. He had no form or majesty that that we would look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. So the he there is referring to God's servant. That's been uh, started, brought up in the previous chapter, chapter 52, starting in verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. And you say, okay, that sounds better. I like the high and lifted up, the exalted servant. That's what I like. That's what I would listen to. But now, in chapter 53... The servant is like a shoot that comes out of the ground, like a root out of dry ground. Now, I'm actually kind of thankful to be preaching this today because here in Northeast Pennsylvania, I don't have to really illustrate dry ground to you. You can probably picture your plants, if you have any plants at home, you can probably picture them. They're not doing so well, are they? Because plants out of dry ground don't do that well. They don't look nice. You don't go, wow, I think we're going to have great flowers this year. But that's what he's like. He's like a root out of dry ground. He's not impressive. You could even say, you probably are saying that your plants this year are suffering. He's a suffering servant. And he has no beauty. No beauty for him. No appearance of majesty that we should be attracted to him. And now you can kind of understand why people wouldn't listen to the message, right? You think, okay, this is the power of God. This is the message of the Lord. We would think high, exalted, but he kind of doesn't look that great. Not doing that well. Nothing to look at. No appearance that we should desire him. Think about that. God's servant. You just kind of, there's nothing to look at there. But it gets even worse. Because it's not just neutral there. It's as he is as though someone that men would hide their faces from. So it's not just a neutral expression that there's nothing to look at, but it's that you would look the other way. Imagine that you're going about your day, you know, you're getting your groceries, you're doing whatever, and you see someone that looks so bad that you're like, oh, I can't even look. That's what the servant of the Lord is like. So who has believed our message? Who has listened? The servant is like this. And he's like this. He's despised and rejected. We turn our faces from him because he took up our grief. He took up our sorrows. He's like us. That word grief, it can also be translated sickness or illness. He's acquainted with our illnesses. You ever been sick? You know, sick for a long time, you don't really get out of bed and whatever, and then you finally feeling a little better, you get up, you go to the bathroom, you look at yourself in the mirror, and it's like, whoa. He's acquainted with, he knows our weakness, our infirmity, our sickness, our illness. And we regarded him, so he carried our sorrows, he bore our sorrows, and we regarded him, what? Compassionately? You say, wow, that's pretty bad, I guess we should have compassion. No, we don't regard him with compassion, We actually regard him as this way because God has done it. Look at him and say, well, he must have done something really bad to look that bad, to have a life that sorrowful, to be that crushed. 
He must have done something really bad. God must really be displeased with him. That's how we think. That's how we regarded him. Stricken by God. Smitten of God himself. Like Job's friends. You know that story in Job? Like, boy, you're having a bad day. You must have done something really bad. God is punishing you. That's how we think. Now the irony is that God was in fact afflicting him. He was indeed stricken by God. But not because God was punishing him for doing something so bad. But because God was laying on him all of what we have done, as we'll see in a moment. So this is the lowest of the low. This is the outcast. This is a person who has come into human suffering and suffered with the worst of us. And they look at him and they think, even God has rejected him. And he was treated as the lowest of the low. Jesus entered into that. Think about that for a moment. I have a friend, his name is Daniel. We were roommates in seminary when we lived in Chicago. And one day Daniel was, he was jogging along the seawall that runs along the, the coast, the shore of Michigan, or of Lake Michigan in Chicago. So he was just jogging along in the city and he came across a group of young teenagers and they were standing on the seawall looking out at the lake, just all kind of standing there. And he noticed what they were looking at a soccer ball. Because one of the teens, they were playing soccer, one of the teens had kicked the ball and it went out into the water and it's just sort of like slowly drifting farther and farther away and they're standing there looking at it. And finally the teens convinced the kid who had kicked it, you know, the one who'd kicked it into the lake, that he should jump in and go get it. So the kid jumps in, he swims out there not very well, grabs this soccer ball, kind of swims back, throws it up to his friends, comes back to the wall, and it's quite a distance between the top of the cement wall and the top of the water. It's probably about four feet. But there's these little handles that are about this wide. It's kind of like a ladder that you can pull yourself up on. So the kid comes back to the shore and he grabs onto it and he's holding onto it. And he's trying to pull himself up out of the water, but he can't. He can't get enough pull to get up over the edge. Now, one of the things you have to know about Lake Michigan in Chicago is that it is always very cold. It's always cold. And so the water is cold. And so my friend Daniel comes across, across the scene and he's starting to think, he's a very like safety-minded guy and he's starting to think, okay, it's not going to be very long if this kid can't get out and he's struggling, he's getting weaker and weaker. It won't take him very long before he succumbs. Uh, he will sink and he'll drown. And they could call 911, but for them to get to the seawall, it's going to be a few minutes. And so they're standing there, and his buddies are kind of recognizing this too. And they're, they're yelling encouragements from him, like, over the wall. They're like, come on, come on out. You know, the guy takes his shirt off, and he's trying to lower it down to try to help him. And every attempt is worse, and they're just yelling, you can do it. Come on out. Get out. But none of it helps. And my friend Daniel realized, this kid is going to drown unless he does something. So my friend Daniel takes his shoes off, and he jumped in. And he's trying to help the kid. And he eventually, what he had to do is literally push the kid out. And so they get out. He climbs out. They're like, you saved his life. That's what we need. We need somebody to jump in to our suffering and lift us out. 
Because all the other worldviews out there, all the other messages that you could believe and follow are just shouting things at you while you're drowning. Try harder. You know, what you need is a little more self-care or just grind it out. All of those things are just yelling at us while we're drowning. What we need is someone to jump in and lift us out. And that's exactly what we have in Christ. Surely he has borne our sorrows and known our grief. So Jesus suffered like us. The second thing we see is that Jesus suffered for us in our place. Christ the Son died for our rebellion. Let's continue reading verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We like sheep, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus suffered... He experienced this harsh suffering and harsh treatment. And we thought, well, God must be punishing him for all the evil that he was doing. But the reality is that he suffered so much because he was being crushed for us. For our rebellion against God. Verse 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. That piercing, that's just a minor thing. It means a fatal wound. And he was crushed for our guilt. Picture, you go outside, you're on the sidewalk this afternoon, and you see a cricket, and you step on it. You crush it. That's the image. He was crushed. Not because of any guilt that he had, but because of our guilt. And by his wounds, we are healed. Now, this word healed is an interesting one. When we look at it, it means to restore, repair, or mend. It's used in Jeremiah 19.11 of pottery. You know, if you break pottery, it's all crushed up into a billion pieces. You could, you know, maybe try to mend it, put it back together. That's what this word is talking about. Now, I've heard this many times, and maybe you've heard this. People say, you know, by his wounds we are healed. And so we're going to pray. We're not going to have sickness anymore. You know, if I get a fever later, I'm going to say, well, Jesus was wounded, so I'm healed. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is that he was broken so that we could be mended. It's about the spiritual condition that we have. It's not about our physical ailments. It's about our spiritual need to be put back together. This is a message that deals with reality. I don't know about you, but how many people out here can recognize our need to be put back together? Our need for a solution. Are you just tired of being down in that and people yelling solutions at you? Or do you want to be put back together? That's the message of the gospel. That's central to the message that we have from Jesus Christ. By his lacerations, we're put back together. We're mended. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Iniquity or guilt. If you think iniquity and you go, I don't know what that word means, just put guilt in there. 
the Lord laid on him all of our guilt. If we just took this room, that'd be a lot of guilt. But all of the world, all of humanity for all time was laid on him. And that word, interesting, laid on him, it actually means to let something fall. It's like if I push this thing over and just let it fall. To let something strike someone. All of the guilt that we had stored up, all of the consequences, all of the wrath, and God lets it fall upon Christ the Son. All of our guilt striking him. At the time when Isaiah was writing this, their chief enemy was the Assyrians, the ancient Assyrians. And they had a custom in that time. They were pagan people. And if they thought something bad was going to happen to their king, you know, they, as pagans, they tried to interpret omens and kind of see what was happening. If they thought something bad was going to happen to their king, he was going to die, he'd get a disease. They had a religious rite where they would have a substitute for the king. So we don't want the king to die, but something bad is going to happen to him. So maybe we can trick the bad fate to falling on someone else. So they would go in the kingdom and they would find somebody that nobody really cared about. They'd find somebody low, you know, maybe it was a criminal, maybe somebody with a handicap, you know, whatever it was. They'd say, no, you know, this is who we view as the lowest person. And they would take that person and they would put them as a substitute for the king. And they'd say, well, hopefully that evil that they thought was going to happen would go on that person. And then they would kill that person in the place of the king. Okay, now the king is killed and hopefully the king will be fine. That's the culture which Isaiah is writing, the Assyrians. That's pagan thinking. Only in Christianity, only in the gospel, does the king of kings and lord of lords die in the place of the lowest and vilest criminal. That's the message. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of a God who would come and suffer for us to take our place for the wrongs that we had done against him. Only Christianity has that message. And here is the real solution. That God in the flesh took our place for all our sin, all our guilt, all our wrath that we had stored up. And he suffered it to save us. He suffered to be our substitute. I want you to think about for a second, if you had to, just imagine, if you had to go to a sacrificial animal, like a lamb or a bull, and you had to walk up to that cute little thing as it's looking at you, and you had to put your hands on its head, and you had to identify with it for all the sins that you had done, as a priest would cut its throat, and you would watch the life drain out of that animal for your sin. Now, I hazard a guess that all of us, myself included, would be mortified by that. Imagine Christ, the King, the God who created you, standing before you. And you have to put your hands on his head. Look him in his eyes while he dies in your place. That's our message. That's the gospel. That's hope. 
that transforms suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. So he suffered like us. He suffered for us. Jesus also suffered injustice willingly. Let's keep reading. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Christ the Son died silent in the face of false accusations. Now verse 8 there, when it says, by oppression and judgment, oppression speaks to the idea of being enclosed and bound. Something that's enclosed and bound up. And judgment is the idea of a legal proceeding. And so we could kind of you know, just put this in a different expression, and we could say it's like saying, cuffed and convicted, he was taken away. He was bound and carried off by legal proceedings. And then verse 9 speaks of the injustice. He was convicted, he was taken off, and not only was he not guilty of what he was, con- what he was charged with, the charge that was brought against him, but he spoke... No deceit, and he had done no violence. Look at the second part of verse 9. So he was, he was not guilty of what they charged him with. And also, he had done no violence and never spoken any deceit. Now, which of us could say that? So, no violence, none at all, never spoken any deceit. None of us could say that. But he was taken away. He suffered this injustice. And then look at the second part of verse 8. And as for his generation, the people who were living at that time, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Again, it's a question. But what it's asking is who saw what Jesus went through? Who was alive in that time and thought, you know what, I realize he's not... He's not facing that because of anything he did. He's facing it because of the people. He's, he's suffering for our sin. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. They all looked at him and they thought, what a wicked person he's, he must be to face such horrible suffering. That's a pretty terrible thing to think. I mean, imagine he's doing something so noble. He is bearing our sins. And yet even in that, we look at him and just think, well, he must be an awful person. And revile him as though he was doing something wrong. And in the face of that injustice, he stood silent. Think about who he is. The king of kings. The one who spoke, let there be light. And light came into being. The one whose voice shook the mountains, whose holy fire consumes anything profane, and yet he was silent in the midst of these accusations. And by the way, that is an injustice that Jesus still suffers to this day. 
from all the people who don't accept him for who he said he was, for who he is. And for, also for every person who says, well, I'm a pretty good person. You know, the big man upstairs and I are good. I don't need Jesus. Oh, really? So while he's bleeding and dying, crushed for your iniquity, you're just going to spit on him and say, uh, thanks, but no thanks. I don't, that doesn't sound like a very good person to me. Jesus still allows people to treat him unjustly. Justice would mean that every time someone uttered his name as a curse, they would be instantly destroyed, vaporized, killed for blaspheming the living God. But Jesus suffers that injustice along with all our sin and rebellion and other injustice because he desires that no one should perish. And the reality is that you and I have come to faith and been reconciled to God because of that forbearance that God shows. Without his forbearance, we would have no hope. So aren't you glad that God doesn't immediately respond to our injustice against him? That he doesn't immediately crush us when we do that? Aren't you glad? I'm glad of that. But maybe then that should give us pause in our need to see immediate justice done whenever somebody does injustice against me. The God of the universe, the second person of the triune God, experienced injustice. And he demonstrated that there are greater things than seeing justice immediately done. So he experienced injustice. Fourth and last point, Jesus suffered by God's desire, according to his design. Christ the Son died by the Lord's will. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It was the will of God to crush him. Now translating it that way, it was the will of, that's probably the most neutral of possible translations. The word really can mean it pleased the Lord. It was his desire. God's desire to crush him. But didn't we say he was innocent? Didn't we see that he was innocent? God desired it because Christ the Son was making an offering for guilt. It says his soul. Now when we hear that word, we think soul, we kind of think it's like spirit, the immaterial part. It's not just that, it's bigger than that. It's like his life, his being, his whole life. He, out of the anguish of his soul, he is making an offering for guilt. And Jesus understood what the outcome of his suffering for guilt would be. Let's look, verse 10. 
When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see his offspring. Now think about that for a second. We should be asking, what offspring? We just say he died. He's dying. What offspring is he going to have? Because if you think about it, remember Jesus died single, celibate, and childless. So where are these offspring? And how is he going to prolong his days? He's been killed. How is he going to be prolonged? Well, we can answer the question, who are his offspring? The answer is we are. He is making an offering for guilt. We who believe in Jesus Christ are his offspring. In the midst of his anguish, verse 11, he will see and be satisfied. In other words, as Jesus was suffering this, he understood what he was doing. He understood that this suffering, this severe trial was God's will and that it would produce through God's desire this offspring, this benefit that he would make the many to be accounted righteous. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was bearing our guilt And I'm so glad that was the case. But as Christ was suffering on the cross, he knew what he was doing. He knew that he was making a a sacrifice for our guilt to redeem us to God. And he was doing what pleased God. And thus he would be vindicated. His days would be prolonged. He would receive his reward because he poured out his life in obedience to God's desire. Christ's suffering is at the heart of our salvation. So, Pastor, you're saying that God's purpose might include suffering? Yep. That's the answer. God's purposes can be greater than our suffering. So notice the title of our series that we're talking about suffering is how the gospel transforms our suffering. It is not how the gospel takes away our suffering. Big difference there. So a couple of application points. One is God calls us to suffer. He, he made restitution for us, but then he calls us, Matthew 16, 24, and he says... Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Self-denial, denying yourself, is a type of suffering. Because you have to deny what you want to do in the flesh. You have to say no to those things. You say, I want to do this. Everything is telling me to do this. Everybody else does it, but I have to say no. It's a type of suffering. So God calls us into that suffering. The second application of this is that God transforms suffering because God entered into suffering. And when God enters into something, it doesn't stay the same. Christ entered into suffering and turned it into salvation. Jesus died, but he rose again on the third day. Death 
was transformed into eternal life. Childlessness was transformed into offspring from every people, tribe, tongue, and language. That's the power of God. That's the message that we proclaim. This is no worthless idol that we serve. This is no message of self-help. This is no just brush over the things that have happened to you. This is the living God. And if we hear the message, and if we believe the message, this is our God. This is our God who transforms our suffering. Now, we're going to hear much more about this as we go through this series over the summer. But as we begin, we have this foundation to understand that the gospel transforms our suffering. Because the gospel, at the center of it, is the suffering servant. The suffering Jesus Christ, who laid down his life in our place. And if we don't understand that piece, none of the rest of it will make any sense. None of the rest of it follows, but we can start there as we continue on. So would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are a God who gives yourself for us on our behalf. That you are crushed for our iniquities, pierced for our rebellion. And you knew what you were doing. Thank you that you persevered through that suffering so that we could become your offspring. We could become your children. Give us the strength to follow you in the things you call us to. And Lord, we want to lift you up and make great your name. Would all that we face, all that we do, would it magnify you and lift Christ high? We pray in the name of the risen Savior. Amen.